Hello, hello, and welcome to The Mental Matchup, a podcast where we hope to shed light on one of the hardest competitions a student athlete will ever face, the matchup against their own mind. I'm Cad, and today I sit down with Nikki Castle. Nikki grew up in San Diego and went to a top-ranked high school for women's basketball. She went on to play at Washington State and graduated in 2000. During her freshman year, Nikki began to experience changes in her health but had difficulty explaining what was wrong. Throughout the episode, she opens up about these experiences and her bipolar disorder diagnosis that she ran from for years. Nikki now works with different organizations like NAMI, Ending the Silence program, where she speaks with student athletes about mental health. We are so incredibly grateful to have Nikki join us, and I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this episode. After listening, go check out Nikki's story, My Journey to Recovery, that's featured on our Mental Matchup story site. With that, let's get right into it with Nikki. Nikki, thank you so much for coming on The Mental Matchup. I am extremely excited to have you on and for the audience to hear a little bit about your story and who you are and kind of your experiences. So with that, can you let the audience know a little bit about who you are, where you are, and what you do? (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Um, Who I am, I am a mental health coach. Um, and how I got there was a very long journey. Um, I was a former basketball player at Washington State. Um, I became then a sports reporter, but all along the way, the consistent part of my journey is struggling with mental health. Um, when I went into college my freshman year, I didn't understand anything about mental health, let alone you know how to take care of it. Um, and so I struggled for many years. And now as a mental health coach, I work with parents and children who um, are struggling with their mental health. And I specifically work with a lot of athletes who are in high school or going off to college who want to um, ensure that their path forward is as smooth as possible mentally. Which I think is so important. And I think in recent times, it's become more of a topic of conversation that gets had but I think there's still so much more work that needs to be done but I want to just like commend you for the work you're doing in that because I don't think I don't think parents like realize the the pressures but then also just like the mental aspect of sports and of school and of just being like to a certain extent of just like being a human and growing Mm. up in this bizarre world that we live in post COVID, pre COVID, all, all the different things, um, to kind of get more background on you. I want to dive in to young Nikki. Like, were you always playing basketball? What were, what role did sports play like in your community? Can you speak to that? I was always, I, I mean, I've been playing sports since I could walk and Actually, my parents say I never crawled. I just kind of did a hand foot thing. So I always wanted to run. I have an older brother, so and he's eight years older. And I was always trying to keep up with him, whether it was running through the canyons, riding bikes, riding skateboards. Um, he would have me jump this fence that was two stories high 
my mom actually one day looked out and caught us doing it and she was like oh my gosh i was four years old and we were hopping this fence so that i could shoot granny shots granny free throws and i had to make 10 in a row before we could go home so this is at four years old barely you know chucking it up um and then it just was always my safe space playing sports it's where i felt free um it's where i just was able to get all that energy that i had inside of me out because i was always hyperactive i was always um in class not a troublemaker but i like to talk a lot i like to distract others because school came easy to me and so i in that way i was kind of a disturbance but yeah all the way through um even in middle school, I'm, the high school coaches were hyping me up to get in and play basketball and volleyball and then track. Um, and so in high school, I lettered in all um, every year. So I had 12 letters and I, volleyball was probably my favorite, but I got the most recognition for basketball. And, um, and that started because I went, started going to the AAU tournaments at 11. And so I was playing travel ball at 11 years old. And one of the thing I tell a lot of my clients is to just really diversify and not do too much too young. And I think I did a pretty good job of that in high school of balancing it out, um, playing three different sports. Uh, and then after that, it was just getting recruited. It was going on and what sport did I wanna play? And I always wanted to play at that time, it was the Pac-10. Now I think it's the Pac-2. I don't know how many teams are left in it, but you know, so I, um, that was my goal. I wanted to do that and, um, and I did. And I, it was, sports is a part of me. It's, it's everything that I am. And I approached life like an athlete. I, everything is about being on a team. Um, we're on, you know, my wife and I approach life like we're on the same team. And um, you know, everything we do is how we would treat our own teammates and um, just at another level. I'm trying to, and I, I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm like a little bit younger than you are and <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around like what the conversion would be for you to be playing AAU at 11 because today, like, I feel like the norm is like throw your kids in travel and specialize in, you know, one or two, but like if you get them in earlier, they're going to be higher recruits later. And, and I feel like, cause you, you graduated in 2000 from college. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So that would have been what, like early or mid eighties that you're 11 Late. years old traveling. Yeah. And like, yeah, that feels like very intense, especially when you think about title nine and women's sports. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I can't imagine like how, how did that impact your childhood and like priorities and balancing school and sports and ultimately like social life. Yeah, it took over um, at that age because I didn't even really know that that's what I was getting into. I just kept getting asked by coaches to play on other teams. Um, and then it was a team from San all of San Diego County. They brought different players together. But at 11, remember, there's no cell phones. There's no email to keep in touch with your, you know, your family and friends. So when you're on the road traveling, that's all that you're focusing on. So summer breaks, when I was traveling, I was missing out on everything that my friends were doing or all that. I would show up in the fall, you know, brand new, and everyone had all these stories. And then it also, for my home, we didn't go on vacations anymore. Our vacations were based around where I was traveling. And so it really, the whole dynamic was a focus on me. 
and everything that I was doing. So it was, um, it took over. And then what the problem was, as I continued, it went from fun to being demanding and to taking its toll. And so by eighth grade, I mean, this is sad, by eighth grade, I was burnt out on basketball for a while. And I stopped playing travel ball. The only reason I played high school ball was because I played in a, I was in a small private school where basketball is everything and they were not gonna let me not play. But um, I was just, I was done with it. I didn't wanna play it. I said, I didn't wanna play in college, but the letters kept rolling in. And so it was like, well, I guess I'll do this because that's where the scholarships are coming from. But it was, it becomes your identity um, and it separates you in cool ways, but sometimes it ostracizes you in the same respect. Yeah, I think what you hit the nail on the head with what you just said of how it like kind of like separates you in a cool way, but also can be, I think it can be isolating at times, especially if you have friends who aren't necessarily athletes or focusing on, you know, playing in college or getting really serious about high school, right? Because when you have to decline, oh no, I'm I'm gone those three weekends in July, like I can't go on that beach vacation right it's like well why can't you just miss it and it's it's hard when they don't have when people in your life don't necessarily have the equivalent of that of where like this comes above pretty much everything um and you know for them to not be able to understand I I always found that that was somewhat of a hard tug of war and and I got lucky where I had a lot of friends who were athletes and so we like understood the different balances and had movie nights before games versus like, you know, going out. Um, what was, can you walk me through, like, what was the recruiting process like when you were getting recruited? Like how did it even work? Yeah. I started getting letters in fifth grade when I went to my first AUs. The first letter I got was from UCLA and we, you know, they couldn't talk to you in person at that time. And so just these letters, letters would start showing up. And I know now a lot of parents are trying to push, you know, get a scholarship. They're going to play in college. At that time, there wasn't a lot of information. It kind of was, oh, you you saw me in the newspaper. People were talking about me, but it was only when I went off to these tournaments that I would get by my junior year, I was walking away from games with a stack. I mean, about six inches high of letters from coaches. And now you talk about awkward when no one else on your team, on your travel team is getting those letters and you've got all these letters and you've got to open them and read them and everything. And some people thought it was cool and I'd share with others. Uh, And then the phone calls started. Um, We had to get a separate line for the phone calls coming in because it was just so much. And they didn't have a lot of rules on, I think it was like one phone call a week, Um, but that's per school. So if you're getting recruited by multiple schools, I mean, I was getting like 50, 60 calls a week, if not more. Um, and then you you kind of narrow those down to recruiting trips. And I don't know that how many people are allowed to take today, but it was five recruiting trips. And I took them in the fall when my whole class went on a college trip. Talk about being separate. My entire class went on a college trip. And I was doing my own recruiting trips, seeing these colleges that were um, looking to recruit me. So it was pretty exciting. Um, I was the only one at my school going through that at the time. And we didn't have signing days. 
I, I signed my national letter of intent before scarfing down breakfast. We just had to get it out the door. And it, so it wasn't those big hype days like they have now. There was no social media talking about it. The biggest thing was I remember I was on the cover of our the sports section of our newspaper. And so my friends taped it all over my locker as a congratulations. Um, they said that the basketball gym was Nikki's castle and she was raining. So that was, you, the, you get little things like that, but the notoriety wasn't big. It was just the, it, the attention coming straight from the colleges. That, yeah, the, I'm trying to wrap my head around like the, the newspaper to a locker versus like what I feel like recruiting is to day and I mean in lacrosse it's like a little bit different but I think about basketball in particular and like I went to do Duke, Duke basketball it was like who's gonna they're a four-star recruit and who's gonna commit and who's on our campus today and like putting them in the uniform you know really like I, it feels like it's a whole different world and it really mm-hmm. wasn't like that that long ago which is <laughs> a little scary yeah. um what was your mental health like through all of this through the recruiting journey through high school going from being burnt out to playing and then ultimately deciding to play collegiately it was heavy uh it was by high school i had always kind of had i was a nervous kid in terms of sports i get really hyped um to the point of almost like too much adrenaline and um get nauseous so I was always that kid that just would get really excited. And by my by high school, I was starting to have the early onset of bipolar disorder. Um, I started not sleeping um, a lot of days in a row, but then I would get sick randomly. And so, for example, it was CIF championships for volleyball, which is huge in California. Um, and I had to be at school at least half the day to play that day. And I was the best player on the team. And my school counselor called me because I was homesick. And she's like, you need to come to school so you can play tonight. And like my friends came and picked me up and I was just, I was horribly ill. Played an amazing game, but at the same time, I didn't get out of bed for the next two days. So it was kind of those things of why is this, you know, 16, 17, 18 year old who's in great shape and looks like a picture of health having these kind of weird things happen and so then especially when i went off to college and this is something i talk to a lot of people about is preparing when you go off to college for your mental health and that means kind of understanding what your school has for a mental health system my school didn't have that we didn't have a psychiatrist on you know on staff um, a therapist or um, a sports therapist we just, when I started having problems, I just went to our regular doctor, our general practitioner, and they, it was hard for me to verbalize what I was going through because part of me didn't really understand it and know how to put words in it, but also part of me didn't want to get labeled crazy. And why was this happening? Because at that time, there wasn't a lot of information out about bipolar disorder. Um, there wasn't a a picture or um, some kind of idea of a person who is living successfully with bipolar disorder. It was always, there was so much stigma around it. So when at night, like I would start getting flashing lights through, you know, coming through my eyes or my ears started ringing or um, some of the other things started to come into play. 
it just, uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. And so I just kind of tried to shake it off, you know, walk it off like an athlete's told, walk it off. You'll be all right. You know, rub some dirt on it. And I just kind of in college really just, I don't want to say skated by, but I did the best I could to stay, keep my head above water when I was really underneath about to drown. Um, because there were days I'd get up for 6am workouts and go to workout, go to weights, go home and sleep for the rest of the day, just to wake up in time to go to practice. So I wouldn't go to class at all the entire day. And most of my classes I wouldn't go to because I was either trying to recover or I just, I couldn't sit still, or there was just so many different reasons why, um, on paper, it didn't match up to what I was doing, um, to the expectations that people had for me. Looking back now, like, did you, did you ever have like a conscious thought about this is weird? Something isn't right that I'm, you know, getting sick or I'm tired or was it kind of like, oh, maybe I'm just worn down. Like what, what were those conversations you were having in your own head or maybe with, family around you? My first concern was I felt like I wasn't keeping up. I was coming in as this highly recruited freshman and right off the bat, I had a very serious injury. Um, I dislocated my hip and fractured my femur and my pelvis. So that kind of set me up for not having, you know, just being kind of depressed on the depressive side anyway. And I reached out to my mom a lot, just I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm crying for no reason. I want to come home. And a lot of that, which I can understand, people equated to uh, being a freshman and just kind of being homesick. You know, I was two states away. The first winter was really tough. Going from San Diego to Eastern Washington was extremely tough. I hadn't experienced winters like that before. Um, But I would say just my inconsistency because there were days where I was killing it on the court and everyone's like, why aren't you starting? Why aren't, you know, what's going on? And then the next few days I couldn't, you would think I never played basketball before. I would forget our plays. I was just out of it. And um, for example, I remember we were playing Stanford and I hadn't been playing well. They put me in, I hit three, three pointers in a row. And it's like, where has this Nikki been all season? You know, and I had an awesome game against Stanford. We go and play Berkeley and I'm terrible. I have like 10 turnovers in a game. So it was just a lack of consistency. And so it was a lot of looking myself in the mirror and like, what is wrong with you? And so it became self-deprecating of, I wasn't good enough. There was something wrong with me. Um, I couldn't keep up. So instead of being that understanding that I had a disorder that I was also battling at that time, so I was constantly feeling not good enough, really. At, at what point were you kind of like professionally diagnosed with the disorder within the timeline? I'm trying to clarify. For yeah, me. <laughs> for sure. Um, so after college, throughout college, I kind of, I saw different doctors and they would prescribe different medications that I didn't stick to because I didn't like the side effects or whatever, but no one ever really gave me a, um, that saying that it was bipolar disorder. 
Uh, it wasn't until 2004, I was actually working for a pretty, one of the top three television stations and was in the middle of a sexual harassment lawsuit. And it was huge. And it was in San Diego where I'm from. So it hit the news and it was kind of a big deal. And then my father told me he had cancer. So this is all happening in one week. And I, the stress was just too much for me to handle. And I didn't know how to manage what I was experiencing. I didn't have any tools. I didn't have any skills. And I hadn't slept in probably about three or four days, non, no sleep. And then probably a week with about an hour or two in between there. So I just felt like I was like, my nerves were frayed. I felt like I was going nuts, literally. And that was the first time I tried to take my life. And that was in 2004. Um, and what's interesting is at that moment in time, I didn't really know consciously I was trying to take my life. I just wanted to sleep is really what it came down to. But because I hadn't slept in so long, but I didn't understand. Again, no one's telling me that these are the symptoms of bipolar disorder. No one's saying you, you haven't slept because, you know, you're experiencing mania. And so that took me into um, I spent 72 hours in a very um, high security um, psych ward. And I'm talking like four white walls, um, saw some things you only see in the movies. And what it did though was more harm because it may, I separated myself from that. I said, I'm not that, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, I'm high functioning, I'm working, you know, I'm not that. And so it wasn't until exactly 10 years later that I just, I had been spiraling, I kept trying to run from um, bipolar disorder. Um, I was in news at the time, so I moved all over the place thinking, every time things got bad, if I move again, maybe I'll feel better, you Tale know? Tale as old time, yeah. Right, yeah, <laughs> if I can outrun it, I'll be fine. And it didn't work. And so um, in 2014, that time I, I did try to take my life and I had been spiraling. I wasn't sleeping. Um, I had been, there were days, days I couldn't get out of bed. And I just was like, this isn't life. I've, you know, I've experienced such highs in my life and here I am, I can't even get out of bed. I can't finish projects that I'm trying to work for. My job is suffering because I'm unreliable. I'm calling out sick all the time for work. And so I felt like a loser, like, you know, and to go from feeling like this great athlete who's accomplished so much early on in their life, then to kind of have that downward spiral, it was like, who am I anymore? And that was the point where I was like, I can't do this. And I took my, I tried to take my life um, and thankfully, my wife got to me early. Um, she found me and they had to put me in a medically induced coma. Um, and so I spent three days in the coma and then another couple of days in the hospital. And I don't know how I walked away. Fine. I'm okay. I don't have any, and nothing happened from, from it all. But what happened was I had a reality check of, I need to change. I need to change something. I need to figure it out. So when I had a doctor tell me I had bipolar disorder, I researched it like I was doing a term paper. Like I researched everything about it and everything started to make sense. And it started to fall into place of, oh, this is why I love to drive 100 and 
20 miles an hour sometimes down the road when I'm going through mania, I make risky decisions. This is why, um, you know, sexual promiscuity or things that come along as another sign that I was like, that's not me, but sometimes it would show up in me. It just didn't, things didn't make sense. And um, that's what a lot of people around me would also see. They're like, well, Nikki's a great person. She does this, but then she also does these things that are questionable that don't make, it doesn't add up. But once I started understanding it, and once I started taking medication, it started to all come into play of, okay, this is what I have. This is how I can treat it. And now what do I want to do with my life moving forward? I want to help people. I don't want them to go through what I went through. I want them to either figure out, you know, what they're experiencing early on, or what I do with my clients is give them the tools and skills that they need so that when they go through life and deal with things that are situational, circumstantial, that don't need medication, they have the tools and skills that they need to get through those, you know, rough times. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, yeah, I, I think there's something to be said for, like, to point to your experience, right, of, like, your first kind of, like, getting four white walls, like, what you see in, like, m- movies, like, and then completely revolting against that saying that's there's no like that's that's not me I I agree I think sometimes like granted I've never for, had a firsthand experience but I think sometimes like facilities can provide like a wake-up call and be really helpful and I also think there's times where they can be really harmful um and I like don't know what the right answer is for you know, <laughs> but I don't know I'm that's that They're that's tough not- because yeah some people do need it and some mm-hmm. people need that help and that um that you know strict regimen um i just i didn't need it at that time um and it, like you said i just pushed it away like it wasn't me yeah and i i also definitely resonate with the the like theme of running away and i i feel like <laughs> i I feel like I've had so many times in my life where I've been like, oh, I'll do this and things will be better. And oh, I'll do this and things will be better. Oh, I'll go here. Okay. Oh, maybe I'll change this. And like, really, it's like, no, you have to really do like internal work. It's not about changing your external environment. Like sometimes I think that helps, right? Like if you get away from a certain person or whatnot, but at the end of the day, like it's, it's really all internal that you need to, to work on. And then that changes so much. Um, but wow, I'm really glad that your wife found you and that you, you know, kind of had that, like, all right, let's figure like athlete mentality. Like, let's figure this out. Like how to like, let's figure out who the players are. What's the scouting report? Like, what do I need to watch out for? Um, I'm a big believer in knowledge is power. And I think especially with mental health, I had never felt more in control until the moment that I sat down with a psychiatrist and she explained like the chemicals in my brain to me with like different colored squigglies. And she was like, Mm -hmm. now you are low in this. And these are the, you know, and like, I was like, wow, like this makes so much sense. Like I'm not crazy. I have like, I am, you know, I have depression and this is what it looks like. And this is how we're going to fix it. And I felt like once I knew what it was and I was armed with, the tools to like a 
approach it and manage it, it was like, oh, I can do this. Like it, it was the opposite of like, this isn't life. This isn't what I want to be doing. Cause I think that's such a scary place where you don't have a lot of information about what's going on. And so I think that knowledge can really open up so many doors and like bring light back in. Um, yeah. And I think athletes too, like we grow up getting injuries and like you can point to it or you can see an x-ray and you're like, okay, this is broken. I get an MRI. Oh, that's torn or whatever. And we, that we're given a plan of, mm-hmm. okay, you need ice, you need to go physical therapy or whatever. And just like you said, once you are able to break it down and see it where literally this is the science, this is the black and white of it. And now this is what we're going to do moving forward. And I think that's what helped me because I call my doctors and my team. I do <laughs> like, that's my team. They take care of me, but they understood that I just wanted to eat up all the information. And the more that they gave me, the more I could understand the big picture. And that's been really helpful for me. going to take a quick break and we'll get back to Nikki in a moment. I'd like to take a second to talk about Morgan's message, without whom this podcast would not be possible. Morgan's message was founded in July of 2020 to honor Morgan Rogers, who was a beloved daughter, sister, and fiercely loyal friend. Morgan's message strives to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health within the student-athlete community and equalize the treatment of physical and mental health in athletics. We aim to expand the dialogue on mental health by normalizing conversations, empowering those who suffer in silence, and supporting those who feel alone. To get in touch with Morgan's Message, to find out more, or to get involved, head to morgansmessage.org or find us on Instagram at Morgan's Message. With that, let's get back to Nikki. I sometimes think of this podcast as like a source for people to kind of go to and hear experiences of other people. Cause I think that not like your story, for example, right. Someone might be listening to this right now and think like, wow, I can see myself in her and like can relate to this. And, you know, life's not over. Like you can turn the page and get healthy and like live a really fulfilling life. Um, I, I, I want to get into a little bit, about what you're doing now with being a mental health coach, because I, I really admire when people are able to take something that can be like, like really ugly, right? Like something that you can either like run away from, or you can embrace and then take and say, I want to change others, people's other people's lives and make it so that like they're armed with the information and I can support them. Um, so can you talk a little bit more in depth about, I don't know, how you got started, what you're kind of doing, the ins and the outs. Well, coming off of my diagnosis, I kind of had a pity party at first of, okay, I've got to deal with this and this medication sucks and this new reality sucks. And I just was, you know, but I I was going to do it. I knew I was going to stick to this plan um, because nothing else had worked before. And so as I was doing that, I was still kind of working in some jobs that I, 
I didn't enjoy as much because I'd been in television, but I left that um, after having some problems with with bipolar disorder. But I just kind of was I wasn't enjoying it. And I said, you know what? I went through all this. I don't want others to go through this. I want to be that example that I wish I had when I was younger of someone who has bipolar disorder, but is actually thriving, is actually doing well, is taking their medication, isn't, you know, falling off the wagon or um, and is able to have a family. I wanted to have a family. That was really important to me too. having my son. um, I didn't want to create an, you know, an unstable environment for him. And um, and so a lot of what I do is looking forward. It's looking at the next generation. It's looking at my son. What kind of environment is he going to grow up in that talks about mental health? Is he going to grow up saying, oh, my mom is crazy or you know what? My mom has bipolar disorder and she's helping others. And that's what I want him to embrace. And that's what I want others to embrace is their own uniqueness of it may not even be something, like I said, that they need to take medication for, but coming off of the pandemic, I mean, a lot of people are dealing with mental health challenges and whether they know it or not. And most mental illnesses or mental health challenges are circumstantial. They are situational. And so it's just getting that extra boost to help people get past that or giving them the tools and helping them understand where they are. But Again, I just I really just I don't want people to go through what I went through, because when I started looking at my story and started reflecting, which was a part of my therapy, was reflecting on the things that I'd gone through. I mean, it looked like some kind of, um, you know, fiction novel. It just it was unbelievable. Some of the highs and lows that I've experienced and um, I want to share my knowledge and be a living version of what people see on paper, you know, they see bipolar disorder, they see the symptoms and everything. Well, look at this face. This is bipolar disorder. I think that's so powerful. Um, when you're working with these parents who have a child struggling with their mental health, where do you kind of start? And I'm, I guess like, I'm asking this question for maybe someone who's listening, who's like, maybe my child's struggling with um, their mental health. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. A lot of times the parent approaches and it's very vague. It's, um, you know, my child is, um, has new friends or they've, they've kind of changed a little bit or um, they're not in, in the same interests. And what those are though, are, you know, warning signs possibly of, it's okay for kids to change. I mean, we're going to change so much in our lives, but understanding what to look for. And so when I talk to parents, I'm more giving them ways to approach conversations with their child, what to look for, because teens especially, I mean, they're changing their emotions every day, basically. And so you can't, if you follow the erratic line, yeah, your child is out, you know, be seen as out of control but <laughs> if you look at their baseline where are they fundamentally where you know where is that okay let's work with that um i have a a, a girl a, a daughter she is um in high school she plays volleyball dealing with an injury um but her mom came to me because she noticed like i said she had different friends um she wasn't hanging out with her old friends come to find out 
her new friends were actually a really um, good influence on her. And she felt that her old friends were holding her back. So it's kind of bridging that gap of communication between a child and a parent and understanding while giving them tools and ways to help them help the child, it's also helping the parent understand their child. Yeah, I, not a spoiler, I don't have kids, but I remember how I was in high school and no. I can't imagine, it's it's nice to have someone I feel like you can kind of like give guidelines because I do, I do think kids are really hard to read at times um, and that can be so important. So when you're, so when you're working with these parents, are you working through kind of these one-off situations? Are you providing guidelines or do you work kind of on a longer term scale? And do you ever work directly with the athletes or, or kids? Yeah, I do. So I usually do six week programs um, that we kind of go through my coaching framework of finding out what goal, where do they want to get to? Um, and then we audit, where are they right now? We create an awareness of what's going on in their world. Why do they do some of the things they do? Um, and kind of go through that pathway of getting to that goal that where they want to be. And with the parents, it's the same idea. What do they want for their family? Where do they see their family? What are their hopes? What are their problems right now? Where are they? And a lot of times parents, and I'm a parent, so I get it, but we put things on our child. Our child isn't acting right. Our child isn't doing, we don't look within and say, what are we doing? Because our children model after us. And a lot of us in the, you know, parents, we didn't grow up with these mental health skills and tools. So a lot of times the approach isn't possibly the best approach to helping your child that may have a mental health challenge. Um, some parents don't even know what step to take. Um, sometimes I've had athletes who I work with um, who I do need to pass on because they do need to have clinical help. Um, so I work with a, a psychiatrist who I can say, you know, they're past coaching, we're gonna get them some clinical help. But most of, I think I've done that twice um, most of my clients, it's really just about understanding your current situation, your current dynamic, where do you want to get be, and how can we get there? Creating that line of how to get to that situation that you want to have. And for athletes, a lot of times it's um, creating some sort of mental mindset, I call it, where they are able to either deal with the anxiety that they have by um, doing either breathing exercises. I just put together a little workshop talking about the vagus nerve. It's one of the most, the strongest nerves in the body, you're aware, yeah. D different exercises to alleviate anxiety with that cold, you know, cold wash to the face, um, different things. So it's all little things that maybe we hear about or, or hear in passing, and I kind of bring it together in a nice package where they can have that with them the rest of their lives. That's awesome. Um, I love that you're providing that information. I know you are also, um, working on or working with the ending the silence program where you're speaking to high school students, parents, teachers, all of that. What, what's that experience been like for you? It's been amazing. So, um, the national Alliance on mental illness, NAMI, who I'm working with has always, um, 
been a program that I really looked to to give information when I was first understanding bipolar disorder and different resources. Um, they have peer to peer, they have family to family to give support. Um, and so this is a program where we go into the high schools and we talk about stigma and mental health, but we also use our own story and journey to kind of help people understand. And so things that we would talk about of maybe signs and symptoms of various things. And I would discuss things that I ignored within myself. Um, and it's great because especially as an athlete, you talk about being an athlete and kids immediately start listening. They're, they're intrigued. They want to know. You say you played basketball at Washington State. They're like, oh, wow. You say you're a sports reporter in New York and you got to be there in, at Old Yankee Stadium and interview a Now kids are starting to listen, right? And so then when I also tell them, in addition to all that, I also have bipolar disorder. And I also work with people who have mental health challenges. So it really humanizes everything um, and it brings it to a level where I think kids can digest it. Um, it's well received and you'll see sometimes the kids like who are the quietest will come up later and either ask a question on the side or grab a pamphlet. But it's those moments that you know at least one person, you touched one person and that's all it's about is helping someone, anyone. That's incredible. It's awesome that I, I feel like you have, you've created this like platform almost to kind of like speak about it and, and I think be like very relatable and, and like, a I don't know, like really showing like to your point earlier, like showing what you can do, even if you, you know, are, have bipolar disorder. Like it's not, I don't know, it's not as, I, I feel like when I was growing up, there was this like state, I mean, there's so many students around mental health, but especially bipolar disorder. And mm -hmm. I, I think some of it might be like the media and whatnot, but I like love that you're totally disbanding the stigma around it and, you know, making it so that people aren't automatically jumping to the wrong conclusion, you know? Um, yeah. I think that's incredible. Yeah, that's my goal. That's my goal, really. And that's how it kind of started out, me creating this platform. Um, as I was in, starting my recovery, I just started opening up of what I was going through because immediately I had a lot of side effects. Um, I had hand tremors and just kind of a lot of little things. And so it was almost a way to explain what was going on with me. Um, and then I noticed how well received it was from people. They're like, oh, I've got a cousin who has bipolar or, oh, you know, my my friend has bipolar. Like, and so it started to, to connect the dots. And as I started to share more and more, I noticed that people, oh, I heard you talk about that. I have a question. And I, so it made me want to get more knowledgeable so I could really be there for other people and be a resource. And now I just have expanded it a little more. That's amazing. Um... That's incredible. I, yeah, it's like, it's hard to take it all in because I feel like you're doing so much, which is, I don't know, we, we have very similar like passions for the cause. And, and I love when, I don't know, in admiration, um, <laughs> we are coming up on time, which yeah. is crazy. I feel like this conversation yeah. flew by. Um, we always like to end, I like to end with two closing questions. Um, the first question is, 
if you could go back to when you were struggling most or at a really low point, what would you tell yourself? What piece of advice would you give yourself um, with kind of like what you know now? That it'll all work out. It'll be okay. Because I, when I would hit my darkest moments, I didn't see an opportunity for it to get better. And I just, I never, there were, I had one sign one time where I was laying, and I'll be quick, but I was laying in school and I had packed up my bags and I had them in my car and I was determined I was going to drive back home. And I was on the ground crying. And I was like, gosh, you know, just give me a sign, give me a sign. And this is a dark winter day in Washington. And all of a sudden sunshine came through and like, just warmed me, like just, and if I hadn't experienced it, I wouldn't believe it. And it was those moments that I had to hold on to because I had no one able to tell me it was going to be okay. No one, no doctors, no friends, no one said that. So I think just having hope for the future. So important. I mean, everyone needs a little bit of hope. Um, Yeah. Yeah. My last question is what are you most grateful for? Oh gosh. So many things. I try to say, my gratitude every day. I'm so grateful for my family. I really am. And the support, um, they cheer me on. They are so supportive of everything I'm doing. Um, we had a brunch yesterday for the ending the silence program and both my son and my wife came. And, um, so just knowing that they've got my back and they're right there with me in this journey is everything. I love that. Um, well, Nikki, thank you so much for coming on the yeah. matchup. I yeah. am so grateful that you, you came on and shared some really vulnerable moments, um, and kind of what you're, what you're doing now with those experiences, which is incredible. Thank you so much. This is amazing to be able to talk to you and just have this comfortable conversation. You're great to talk to. <laughs> about her mental health journey and ultimately her experiences. I am so grateful to have so many unique voices come on. And in particular, I think, you know, with mental health being very stigmatized, bipolar disorder is also extremely stigmatized. I I think, at least in my experience, the images or the videos of those who were diagnosed with this did not look like your mom, your sister, your friend. And and I love being able to have such an incredible voice come on to really help break that stigma in my mind of like, you know, human first experiences, et cetera, all of these things. Um, so a huge shout out to Nikki for being so vulnerable and willing to talk about it. If you want to come on the mental matchup and you have a story or an experience to share, you can email us submission at morgansmessage.org or head to morgansmessage.org to get in touch with Morgan's Message to find out more or follow along. You can head to morgansmessage.org or head to Instagram at morgansmessage. With that, I will see you next episode.